Hello, we're very excited to hear from Benita Fitzgerald Mosley today. Benita is an icon of women's track. She's the first American woman to win an Olympic gold medal in the 100 meter hurdles. She's a two-time Olympic team qualifier, a Pan-American champion, a national champion, a 15-time All-American and an NCAA champion. After her success in track and field, Benita worked as an engineer in computer hardware and software development before switching to sports marketing and leadership. She has since done so much for the sports world, including serving as president of the Women's Sports Foundation, directing the marketing division for the Atlanta Olympics, working with US Olympic committees in various capacities, and is currently vice president of community and impact and the president of Fun Play for League Apps. She's also the mother to two grown children. Hello, Benita. It's so great to meet you and to hear from you. Nice to be here with you as well. Thank you for taking the time to answer some questions for us and tell us more about yourself. Um, so can you share with us a little bit about your experience as a young athlete just starting out? Uh, what, what are some of your earliest memories of sports and competition? My very earliest memory was competing at a field day when I was in the uh, second grade. And the, the words I, I remember the teachers saying about me running a, a lap around the big field at my elementary school was, boy, you run like a gazelle. And uh, I went on to, I was a parent of two amazing educators and they wanted my younger sister and I to, to really experience all kinds of things that they didn't have uh, the opportunity to take advantage of growing up as African-American, you know, children and young people uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s um, timeframe. And so, you know, they, we were music. I played flute and piccolo. I um, I tried majorettes and I tried softball and gymnastics and all of these other uh, sports. Um, and they were just so focused on ensuring that we had this nice, well-rounded experience. And so it wasn't until my second year in middle school. So I was in seventh grade and I was trying to be a gymnast like Olga Corbett and Nadia Kamenich. I was just so inspired by, by Olga in particular at that time and didn't know that it was the year that Title IX was passed, but it was also the year that I entered middle school in sixth grade and then seventh grade started running track because my middle school gymnastics coach, Gwen Washington said, Benita, you should come out for the track team. I saw that you beat all the boys in PE class. So, um, you know, I think you're really fast. I think this was ob obviously her attempt at redirecting my talent. I was, I'm 5'10", can't see that on a Zoom screen, um, but I was on my way to 5'10". By the time I was in the seventh grade, well on my way and uh, not very flexible, not very good at gymnastics. But at that time, there was mostly sports in middle school were no cut sports. So she was trying to help me find my niche and she she was very successful at that in the seventh grade. So I'm very thankful to, to Coach Washington for pointing that out and um, the rest is history. Well, I'm also 5'10", and I can say gymnastics was never in the cards for me either. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was it 
Is it unusual, I should ask, for a track runner to start at a later age in childhood like you did? What, what age were you when you began running? Yeah, I was 12 years old. Um, and then in yeah, middle school, we just, uh, I'm very much a Title IX baby. It was passed in 72 and I started sixth grade, as I said, um, in the fall of 72. So I had lived in a county that's pretty progressive here in Prince William County. It's the second largest county in the state. And so I had all sorts of sports opportunities, both in, you know, rec and parks and also in our school system. So I was just really fortunate and was, like I said, my parents wanted to avail all kinds of opportunities to us. At that time, you know, kids started when they started. It wasn't as professional uh, esports as it is today. I work at League Apps, as you mentioned, and um, we are working with many club and travel organizations that are certainly being run in a very professional way. They're multi-million dollar enterprises. All their coaches are professionals. Uh, kids start playing travel sports and, and running track now as soon as they can walk. And so it's a whole different scenario than it was when I was growing up. I just kind of got thrown into it, like I said, by Coach Washington. And my talent took over at that point in time. We didn't even train very much. It was a few weeks in the fall in the seventh and eighth grade, a few weeks you know, in the winter and spring and high school. Uh, now it's pretty much a year round sport. So it's a, it's a whole different world out there today. So when you began running at the age of 12 and then qualified uh, amazingly for the Olympics at the age of 18, in that time frame, in those six years, what were some highlights of your youth development or moments along the way that allowed you to believe in yourself prior to that superstardom? Yeah, so Coach Washington was first in, in middle school, identifying my talent, putting me on the track team, encouraging me along the way. And by the time I got to high school, I was certainly one of the top athletes in the, in the area. I won all of my meets when I was in middle school and I got to high school and joined a, a team that had already won three straight uh, state championships in the biggest school division. And so my coach Ann Lockett at high school uh, was very successful. She also coached the gymnastics team to a state championship and the basketball team to a state championship. And so at the end of my freshman year, after we won our fourth straight state championship, um, there was a young woman by the name of Paula Gervin, God rest her soul, she just passed a couple of years ago, who was a family, her, her family and my family were friends. Her younger sister and I became best friends. Uh, our parents were in various organizations together in here in Northern Virginia. And she made the Olympic team in 1976, my freshman year in high school. And Coach, Coach um, Lockett said to me at the time, she said, you know, Benita, you can be on the Olympic team in four years. You have as much or more talent than pa Paula. And that just put it on perspective. You mean I can go to the Olympics? <laughs> it's just like, what? And you're telling this 14 year old child that. And, um, you know, along the way, uh, Coach Lockett left. Uh, Ruthie Brown, who actually sent me a text this morning, uh, was my high school coach in my sophomore, junior and senior year. Uh, young woman, mid-20s, just trying to figure it out. 
and uh, knew, knowing that she had this major talent on her hands, but uh, ensuring that she learned what she needed to learn along the way, pulled in resources, got me to the track meets and track clubs that I needed to um, you know, for my talent to flourish. And as a result, by the end of my junior year, I was on the junior national team. I won the junior championships in the 100 meter hurdles and uh, made the team. We went to Russia. I was on an airplane for the first time, went to Eastern Bloc countries in, in uh, 78. It was a, a different experience, obviously, but one that helped mold and shape me to wear that USA on my chest at, a, at 16 years old. And at the end of my uh, senior in high school, once again, was national champion on the US junior team, but by then was running in the senior national championship. So I got fifth at the US national championships when I was a senior in high school. And uh, of course, signed a scholarship to go to the University of Tennessee and run. So by the end of my freshman year, that was when I made my first Olympic team at 18. Amazing. So you mentioned traveling overseas. Was it uh, any easier competing in the U.S. versus abroad? And is there a difference in how track and field is valued in the U.S. versus abroad, in your opinion? You know, at the time when I was competing in the early 80s in the United States, it was a pretty big sport. Uh, we were on TV about every weekend. Our meets were very well attended. When we had the Milrose Games at Madison Square Garden or our US Championships, the garden was filled to the rafters with people, everyone, all the officials wore tuxedos. It was on uh, televised live. The NBA Championships actually weren't as well um, viewed uh, as track and field meets were at that time. Certainly things have shifted in the United States. Um, where track is barely seen on the television. Uh, and even then, uh, in the early 80s, when we would go to the, go overseas, it would be, you know, we thought we were popular in the United States. It was a whole, we were complete, to use your word, icons uh, when we came uh, to Europe and Asia. It was the number one sport behind soccer uh, in the world at that time. Uh, still is to a large degree, but uh, other sports like the NBA have, have become more global in scope. And so uh, we would walk into the hotel, there'd be fans outside the hotel, inside the hotel with pictures of ourselves, wanting autograph, sign autograph cards, sign the picture. Uh, they take pictures of you at the meet and the next morning before you left, they'd have them ready for you to sign. And uh, certainly blasted all over the television screens if there was a meet that you were in in that town. Uh, all over the newspapers. It was a completely different experience. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, so can you tell me about some of your proudest moments? And did you feel like you had any barriers to success at that time? I mean, my certainly my, my proudest moments are a few that I've recounted. Winning those junior national championships were uh, I never ran in the Junior Olympics. I didn't run AAU meets in the in the summertime. I just went straight straight to the national championships. I didn't really know all that stuff was kind of going on. So uh, those were pivotal moments for my confidence and uh, to put me, I guess, on a world stage to a large degree. 
Um, winning the Pan American Games was a great precursor to the Olympic Games. Making the Olympic team, our Olympic trials at the United, in the United States, particularly in track and field, are tougher in many cases to make than getting on the podium at the Olympics, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in my event where uh, we sometimes have the top five, six, seven, eight women in the world competing in the 100 meter hurdles. And so just to make the team is a huge uh, accomplishment. And so both of those Olympic trials where I prevailed, I was, uh, you know, really proudest moments and a huge relief to know that you've made the team now and you're, you're on your way to the Olympic Games. And of course, the proudest was standing on the victory stand on home soil in Los Angeles, uh, having my parents and my coaches and um, teammates cheering me on and, and to, you know, be able to sing the national anthem played in my honor. And so those are the proudest moments. I'd say, yeah, there, there were certainly several um, barriers to success. And um, I think at that time, we were just becoming professional athletes. And so money was a huge barrier for athletes and being able to make money. Thankfully, for most of my uh, career, I was still a collegiate athlete. So I had all of the underpinnings and support that you get as a collegiate athlete. But once I switched between 84 and 88, competing, trying to make a living to some degree, certainly I had some sponsorship, but it wasn't very much as a black female hurdler. You know, most of the people that got a lot of money were the 100 meter, 200 meter males, 400 uh, meters. And so I think for a good portion of time and probably still now there was a paid equity gap, uh, even when we were paid under the table. Um, but certainly when we uh, started to have contracts with shoe companies and, and appearance fees paid uh, by the meets, the, the guys made in many cases four and five times as much as the women made. So the professionalism in the sport was a huge barrier. Uh, I was also running during a time when uh, the Eastern Bloc countries in particular were doping their athletes, in particular their female athletes. And so I was just really um, at a huge disadvantage, not you know running clean and being in, um, in an era where that was not at all monitored. Their doping and, and the testing system hadn't caught up with the cheaters. I still, I still think they have a hard time keeping up with the cheaters, but uh, we certainly do a much better job of it now. And so a lot of people look at the 84 Olympic games and say, um, wow, that was a, another boycott games uh, and somehow diminishing our success in those games. And I would say, well, gosh, we got to actually run and compete on a level playing field. Uh, the, the doping athletes were the ones in the Eastern Bloc countries for the most part. Um, and so I felt like for the first time uh, that I could actually ascend to the, to the victory stand in an international, major international competition. Um, I would also say that that was the games where we had the most, a record number of countries competing. Uh, in the Olympics. So it just because Russia and East Germany weren't there uh, didn't mean that other countries didn't swarm to Los Angeles for the 84 Olympic Games. And so uh, to win an Olympic gold medal uh, at a games that was the most attended 
by countries ever in the history of the Olympics was, was a hugely proud moment for me. And to do so on a level playing field, even better. So you were competing at the start of drug testing. Um, what were the effects of that on competition? Um, was it was it a welcome change? I, I assume so, but tell me about it. Well, your- not for the cheaters, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, right, <you're> right. <laughs> not for the cheaters, but for everybody else, absolutely. It was, and it was a relief to know. Um, I, I remember the Pan Am Games, there was a, uh, I won't say a scare, but you know, people had made the US team and then it was publicized that they were gonna be uh, doing drug testing at the Olympics. And all of a sudden a bunch of people got hurt, sick, uh, dropped from the team. And you know, they were replaced thankfully by, by other athletes that got an opportunity they otherwise wouldn't have had. So uh, it started really in earnest in 83. And at the 84 Olympic Games, same thing. Uh, Several people made the team and then uh, were asked not to compete. We did, I think, some kind of um, trial testing uh, during the Olympic trials that hadn't happened before. And when I say trial, the results weren't publicized, I don't think, except to, you know, they were notified, the athletes themselves were notified if they uh, were caught doping and were kind of silently taken from out of the team, off the team roster and someone else put on. So that's kind of what was happening in the mid eighties. They were, they were doing the testing uh, for the first time. It wasn't all that well-coordinated, but at least those of us who were um, clean athletes felt like we were protected and supported in a way that we hadn't been in the past. So female athletes today are faced with the expectation that they should be willing to compete uh, directly against males. Putting yourself in their shoes, how would that have made you feel at the time? And how do you feel this inclusion affects black women in track and field in particular? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Title IX in a Um, And I guess by the time people watch this, we will have just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And my whole um, professional career, uh, probably since the the late 80s, when I first understood what Title IX was, how as a Title IX baby, all of the opportunities that I have experienced as an athlete and quite frankly, as a professional have been as a result of my participation in sport would, would not have happened, most likely, particularly at the intercollegiate level, uh, without Title IX. And so I am just eternally grateful for that law and the doors that it opened up for me as an athlete, but I'm an engineer as well, an industrial engineer by degree. And that's a degree path that very few women pursued prior to Title IX or were able to pursue. And so um, you know, the, the law talks about, you know, no discrimination on the basis of sex. And so uh, I, and, and has increased 12 fold, the number of girls, high school girls competing in sport. So my goal in all of this is to ensure that we, and we're still far behind, we still have a million fewer opportunities for girls in high school than boys. We haven't caught up. 
we're, we haven't even caught up as girls in high school sports to the level uh, and number of boys who are participating in sport in 1972, 50 years later. And so my concern is wanting to ensure that girls continue to have not only the opportunity to participate, but the opportunity to win, the opportunity to get college scholarships, the opportunity to be All-American and All-State and uh, NCAA All-American. Those goals that girls set for themselves fuel their participation, fuel their passion, fuel their motivation. And if they are unable to do so um, because of unfair competition, then that's gonna have an adverse, not only an adverse effect on their abilities as an athlete, but also an adverse effect on their career long after. And so um, there's an organization called the Women's Sports um, Policy Working Group. I had to look down to make sure I got that straight. Um, And I think they have a very common sense approach to how we can deal with this issue to preserve uh, girls and women, and I'm talking cisgender girls and women, and their opportunity to to achieve the highest uh, accolades and and, uh, pursue the highest levels of competition um, without barriers in their way. And so I think we should work together to, to, to ensure that Title IX over the next 50 years continues to close the ex- still existing gap for the number of girls. Uh, and we don't experience some unintended consequences of reducing opportunities for girls and women in sport. I understand that you have a daughter who is also committed to sports at a high level. How does she affect your passion for passing on all the wonderful things about sports to the next generation? I'm so proud of Maya is her name. She's uh, just graduated high school a week or two ago and uh, she's gonna pursue um, track and field at University of Maryland on a track scholarship. Uh, She uh, is the, you know, she's the dream, right? Uh, 50 years ago, her mama was, uh, competing in middle school sports for the first time at months after Title IX had passed. And here she is uh, getting ready to, to embark on her own collegiate career. She also is going to be um, speaking at a huge Title IX celebration uh, this week that the um, White House and the uh, State Department are putting on. And she'll speak, speak alongside First Lady Joe Biden and uh, Billie Jean King. And I will be sitting in the audience watching my beautiful daughter uh, on the stage. And you know, these opportunities aren't afforded to her just because she's a nice girl. She's an All-American. She's an eight-time All-State. She's a um, summa cum laude graduate from her high school. And now to soon to be a D1 track and field athlete. And all of those accolades are important. And uh, having to have those opportunities as a young, young woman uh, to pursue that and to pursue it at the highest levels. And so again, what I was saying earlier is just wanting to preserve that. She was also a volleyball player 
And we, we got to experience what uh, a challenge it can be when cisgender males are competing with cisgender females. And it's a, it's a, it's a I know, conundrum for our policymakers to ensure that they are providing equal opportunities for everyone. I just want to ensure that we have safe competition, that we have fair competition, um, and that we have uh, competition where everybody gets to fully you know, express themselves uh, and ensure, continuing to ensure that we have more girls, more and more and more girls, because again, we still have a closed gap, um, are able to compete at the highest levels. And I, I can't imagine as a, as a female sprinter, uh, for her, it's tough enough competing against girls, in her case, who have been training since they could walk. She just started really competing at track and field at a, a serious level a year ago. So she was very, very late to the party. Um, and so to, to know that she would have to, you know, compete in high school and now in college in uh, an unfair playing field, I think would be devastating for her and for her dreams. She just gets waylaid a little bit and anxiety and uh, her confidence is shaken when she's in a competition with girls that are so much faster than her. I can't imagine if, uh, you know, if there were a situation like I had uh, back in the day where the, the playing field just wasn't level for her. So I just saw it, a safety issue when we were in volleyball that we wanted to try to address and and now certainly in the NCAA uh, wanting her to have the the best opportunity for success. She sounds amazing. I can't wait to watch her in her collegiate career. Um, we're forming icons this network of female athletes because we want to see women's sports grow and strengthen. We want women to feel empowered in sports and we believe uh, they deserve fair competition and the chance to be champions. We know the next generation of women are really depending on us. Can you share why you feel like building this network is something worth supporting? I've been part of women's networks since I became a professional, but if you go back to all the track teams I was on in middle school and high school, uh, even the softball teams in elementary school or majorette groups. Um, you know, team is everything. And I was also fortunate to have all female coaches, or at least head coaches in middle school, high school, and college. And I'm good friends with all of them still. They're mentors to me still. I feel like if you can see it, you can be it. We hear that all the time. And I think the icons group is going to be a group of women uh, leaders across the country. Yeah, we were great college athletes or Olympians or professional athletes, and that's wonderful. But what we're able to now impart to our daughters and to other young women is that uh, you can parlay your athletic success into professional success, into personal success. And I, I'm excited to be a part of a group of women who represent that and who are reaching back uh, to, to pay it forward. My, my mission in life is to help people and organizations win gold medals in life and business. And I feel like my sport participation, I think I said this earlier, is the gift that keeps on giving. And I want to use my own talents and experience to give that gift to more and more girls and women. Well, we're so honored to have you. And thank you so much for sitting down with us and giving us 
some uh, pieces of wisdom and insight. We appreciate you so much. So thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs>